0: In 1891, 11 Italian-American immigrants were murdered by a mob in New Orleans. In a bid to show solidarity with Italian-Americans and make a stand against the ugly swell of anti-Italian sentiment in the USA, President Benjamin Harrison declared that the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus crossing the Atlantic would be marked by a one-time national celebration of the discovery of the new world and indeed Italian culture. Despite being a one-off celebration, after tireless lobbying and pressure from the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic fraternal order, and a number of Italian American groups, Columbus Day became an annual celebration in 1934. But it wasn't until 1971 that, 481 years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, at long last And to the joy of many Italian-Americans and patriots, Columbus Day became a national holiday. But in 2020, two big questions are now rearing their head. Firstly, should we celebrate this man? And second, was Columbus actually Italian? Welcome back to the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast with me, Charlie Mannix This is part two of the Columbus Day special. And as you're about to find out, my guest on the podcast, Manuel Rosa, has left no stone unturned in his investigation into the life of Christopher Columbus. His book, Columbus the Untold Story, has been awarded Huffington Post's Best History Book Award, and he also won the 2017 Independent Press Award in world history. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please give the podcast a 5-star review on Apple Podcast. And of course, happy Columbus Day. If you haven't listened to it yet, I suggest you pause this episode go back and listen to part one because we covered a lot in that episode which sets the scene for what you're gonna hear in this one. We ended last episode talking about Columbus's will of 1498 which 400 years ago was dismissed by an Italian court because it was a forgery however today that will is still used as evidence that Columbus was Italian. At this point I had two burning questions firstly if Columbus had this secret identity who were all these people that were covering for him, and why? Second, if Columbus wasn't a wool weaving peasant from Italy, where on earth did he come from?
1: So I, have, I mean, I, I have my theory, as you know, you read my chapter 17, and you know what my theory is of who Columbus was. And Columbus being the son of, of, a, of an exile uh, of a self-exiled king, who was supposed to have died in a battlefield, uh, he could not go around saying that he was son of this king because then there would have been a lot of political upheaval in uh, in a, in a few countries, as part of that way. So uh, it, it's the same reason that um, you know uh, it's the same reason that um, world leaders will give safe haven to another world leader. You know, like right now, uh, the guy the, the the dictator in Belarus who's facing a, a big um, uh, protest in his country is probably looking for some place where he can get safe, safe haven and go live out the rest of his life. So somebody will give him a safe haven. And it's the same thing that, that happened with this king who ran away from the battlefield. And so he was given safe haven in Portugal, but he was given for dead you know, on the battlefield. And so both kingdoms, Portugal and Spain, were protecting Columbus, were protecting Columbus real identity, not to protect Columbus, but to protect his father. Nobody was supposed to know who Columbus's father was.
0: And so you, you think the Spanish, uh, you know, you think the royal establishment of, of Spain as well as Portugal was was in on this? Because that's what I was wondering about. Like if the yeah, Spanish... Exactly,
1: exactly. So basically, you know, Portugal was hiding him because they had to hide him. You know, his father was was exiled in Portugal. So they, they, they're protecting his father in Spain, Spain was doing the same that Portugal was doing. Basically, hey, you know, I, I'm this guy's son, and obviously the world cannot know that he's alive. So help me by not revealing who I really am.
0: So this is contrary to everything that we've been told about Christopher Columbus, that the man who discovered the new world was actually the son of an exiled Polish king.
1: Since the book that you, that since, uh, uh, you know, the Columbus Intel story was published, I actually have you know, more proof that, that uh, Columbus was the son of this of king, and they, including a DNA test that was done to some some of the king's men that came to Madeira with him. Uh, so I have a ta- DNA test done with with uh, one of the guys that came to Madeira with the king of Poland, uh, was actually called uh, uh, Polish Andrei. His name was Andrei the Polish. And Andrei the Polish had a son was called John of France. So... They try to hide, you know, these. these um, they try to hide the truth by pointing to different directions, you know. So the uh, the king of Poland was called Henry the German in Portugal. So he was no longer Polish; he was German. Uh, Andre the Polish had a son, who was called John of France, and so John of France, uh, Juan France, uh, has descendants alive today in Madeira, and uh, I tracked uh, a. I have found one guy alive today uh, that is uh, that goes all the way back to Andre to a male line. So it's male line all the way to the 1500s, 1550s. And I did a DNA test on him, and he still has more than 50% of DNA compatible with the Polish region. So 500 years later, nearly 600 years later, this guy still has the DNA of the Polish people. So that's already one scientific fact you know, what I'm saying about the, the Poland living in the island of Madeira and their false identity.
0: And, and this man who, who gave the DNA, he is a descendant of a companion of... Uh, uh,
1: the king of Poland, exactly, of Columbus's father. Of
0: but but, but he, he came to Madeira, he, was, he resided in Madeira. Um, exactly, so when the king
1: left the battlefield,
0: he obviously had a few, uh, you know, um, um,
1: confidence with him, a few nobles that, that you know, traveled with him to the, to... To Jerusalem on uh, pilgrimage, and then Portugal. He had he had seven or eight nobles with him when he when he was given land on Madeira in 1452. Uh, the land was given for him as seven or eight nobles that he has with him. So he had um, so he, he traveled with another, you know, uh, seven or eight or eight men that were nobles. And I would venture to say that they also had probably some. Uh, uh, lower level um, people with him, you know, not, uh, you know, uh, what do you call them, uh, squires and other things like that. So he said, that aside from the noblemen, they might have had squires and other people. So they might have, it might have been a group of 50 or 50 or, or more people that came to Madeira, you know, with the king. And um, so, so this guy, who was one of the, the, of the men that came with the king uh, and we know this because the king, uh, Henry the German, actually asked Prince Henry the Navigator to give this Andre land next to his land. And the land was given to him, to Andre, and he became um, very successful with that land. And like I said, his descendants took on the name of French, you know, France, and they're still alive today. And that's one of the guys that I tested. Furthermore, I found a genealogy tree uh, in Lithuania, from the year 1666. And this genealogy tree shows um, the king, you know, the, the Polish King Ladislaw III. It shows his father, King Jagiello, Ladislaw II. And the trunk of that tree is Prosper, uh, Prosper Caesar Colonna. So they are descendants of the Colonna's from Italy. And this is where Columbus went to get his name Colón.
0: So that partly explains the origin of the name Colon, which is the name that Columbus used. It's derived from Italy, but carried through the royal lineage of Poland. But the issue many historians have with this theory is that King Władysław III, the man who Manuel Rosa claims is Christopher Columbus's father, supposedly died in battle in
1: 1444. Yes, that's true, that the king is given for dead and died in the battlefield. And I've had this argument with lots of, uh, of different uh, historians. And the first thing I say is, you're telling me the king died in the battlefield. Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, you have a body? No, never found the body. Okay. And the best you can say as a historian is the king disappeared in the battlefield, right? I guess so. Well, if you don't have a dead body, you cannot say he died. So uh, they never found the body. They searched for his body. For about two years, they never found his body. They dug up graves. They looked, you know, they looked for his clothes, his arms, anything. There was nothing left on the battlefield of the king. He was also not, you know, uh, captured, because if he had been captured, he would have been given, you know, he would have, been, uh, he would have brought a very high ransom from the Polish. So uh, if anyone had captured the king, they would not have just whisked him off into slavery somewhere, you know they would have gotten a, a very high ransom for him, which is very common, you know, in those days. As a matter of fact, some, some Christians were ransomed uh, from that battlefield. Um, so the king did not die. The king disappeared. That's the first thing that we have to set straight because if you're going to say the king died, you have to have a body. No, this III the third has two tombs that we know. He has one in uh, Varna and one in Vaval Cathedral. They're both empty. There's no body. Um, the, supposedly, the, the the Turks cut off his head. Cut off his head, you know. Left him in the battlefield. Took his head. Well, a headless body doesn't walk away. But not only that. What we have is we actually have letters from the king. A year later, we have a letter from the king to some other to one to his uncle, basically, saying that he plans to come back. But if he doesn't come back by this time, they should crown a new king. And uh, those letters have been rejected by historians over and over, like the the forgeries, well, I know you have to prove it's a forgery. I have never seen the letters myself, you know, but the letters are um, reported in in contemporary chronicles. And so they did not crown his brother king until two years later. So if the king is dead, the first thing you do when you have a dead king is crown a new king. So if the king died November 10, 1444, November 11, 1444, there would have been a new king in Poland. There was no new king in Poland for two years because they knew the king was not dead.
0: And what was his main motivation for running away?
1: Well, so to save himself? That would have been the main, you know. So there was 60,000 60, Muslims against 20,000 Christians. And it was, you know, it was a pretty big slaughter. So my guess is that, you know, sometime during the battle he was counseled by his, you know, closest advisors, Your Honor, you know, we're all going to die anyway, you might as well save yourself. And so he agreed with that and he left the battlefield, you know, and however he left, disguised as a monk or however, you know, whatever, whatever he did to leave the battlefield, he left. And my guess is that you know, uh, sometime afterwards, he started to feel the shame and remorse, and thinking that uh, I took the coward's way out, which was just died in the battlefield like all of them, and he didn't want anyone to know that he ran away, so he just went on the ground, changed his name, and lived out his life as somebody else.
0: Far from being a peasant wool weaver who swam over to Portugal in his mid-20s, we can now place Cristóvão Colón, the son of an exiled Polish king, on the Portuguese island of Madeira. And, as crazy a story as that sounds, it's a much more plausible foundation for what goes on to happen in the Columbus story. We all know that Columbus claimed he had reached India in that famous voyage of 1492. India, which was an established empire known for its spice trade. One thing that's pointed out in Columbus the Untold Story, which I'd never thought of before, is that it's kind of odd that Columbus decided to start giving new Spanish names to these places in India.
1: So, yeah, this is India, but I'm going to call it Español. You know, the the whole thing is that the new world was already discovered, I I can say, from the bulge of Brazil all the way to Canada was already discovered by the Portuguese, and a lot of it by people prior to the Portuguese. The Nordics, uh, you know, Leif Erikson came to Canada in the year 1000, and the Vikings held a colony in the New World for 400 years. You know, it was only like 1408 when they, when the the last wedding took place in Greenland, and then the, the colonies vanished. So you don't think that for 400 years they've been sailing back and forth between Europe. Of course, they had to sail back and forth. You know, they just sail to America and then never go back. So, uh, it's it's a myth that, you know, Columbus was the first one to sail across. Uh, the The reason that he was that made the world that was able to make the world believe that is because Portugal had kept secret all the discoveries they had made of of the whole uh, eastern coast of the United States all the way down to Brazil because that's how Portugal behaved. They they kept secret everything they were doing to benefit themselves. And so when Columbus left, he already knew where he was going. He already knew what kind of people he was going to run into and he already knew how much food supplies he needed. And he knew, uh, you know, what he was going to encounter here and, and um, where to go to, you know, to find, to find the least resistance, you know, of, uh, from, this, from, this, from the natives. And so when he set off, he knew where he was going. And he, all, he knew it he was not going to India because he brought secretly, he brought cinnamon secretly hidden on the voyage with one of his co-conspirators, another Portuguese guy who, at a certain point, gave it to, to the, the captain of the Pinta, Pinzon, Martin Martin Pinzon. He gave this this cinnamon to the captain of the Pinta, and he says, hey, look, cinnamon, you know, I took it from a native. He had bundles of it over there, and I just took these two sticks. Well, you, we know cinnamon never grew in the new world, so that's that's a complete fabrication, you know? He never could have got cinnamon from a native because it never grew in, in the new world. So the whole thing was planned perfectly, to make the Spanish believe
0: this was India. Hey, if you're enjoying this, it would be amazing if you could make a donation towards the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast to support me in producing this podcast. There's a PayPal link in the description, which you can follow, and it's super easy to make either a one-off gift or an ongoing contribution. Thanks. And so how did Portugal uh, stand to gain from, from this deception? How did they persuade the Spanish, and, and how did they stand to benefit? Okay, so I can,
1: I can zoom that pretty quickly. So, what happens is we know that Queen Isabel wanted to, king, to kill the King of Portugal to nullify a treaty that prevented her from sailing south of the Canaries. Okay? We know that Spain, uh, Castile, was Portugal's only enemy in Spain. We know that King John II was very wise, and he knew that as soon as he went around Africa to the real India, there was no way to prevent the Spanish from following the Portuguese ships. So, be, especially because Spain. Castile was not going to be aligned with Aragon. And instead of being, uh, you know, in the, the whole united Spain that we know today, uh, at that time would be 8 million inhabitants. Portugal had only 1 million. There was no way that Portugal would ever fight Spain and win 1 million against 8 million. And so he had to do it with wisdom. And he knew that if he, as soon as he sent a Portuguese ship to India around the Cape of Good Hope, and that ship returned to, Spain, to Portugal, and the fame that Portugal had discovered, the sea route to the Spices, as soon as that fame hit you know, the world stage, the Spanish would set up their own fleet and go around the Cape of Good Hope to India, and Portugal could not prevent them. So we had to devise a plan. The plan was, we know these, these territories to the west are there, we know how vast they are. We know there's no commerce because whenever we get there, the, the people have nothing to trade and they run away in the inland, so we can't really trade anything. We cannot re- re- uh, supply our ships because there's no ports of call where we can go, you know, buy, buy supplies to resupply the ship and come back and uh, buy food supplies. So we got to bring food for the, both the outgoing and the return voyage. But if we can convince them that this is India and we give that to them, it's enough territory there to keep him busy until kingdom come. And so that's what they did. They planned it and they executed it perfectly. And so the reason Spain signed the deal was that when Columbus returned, the first thing the Portuguese king said was, hey, by our agreement, by our treaty of 1480, where you guys are not allowed to sail south of the, the parallel of the Canaries, the land where this guy Colon came from, Belongs to us, and we're going to go send a fleet over there to take possession of that. And the Spanish kings, well, no, wait a minute, it's our stuff. Why don't we talk about it first? And so that's exactly what the king of Portugal wanted. He wanted to start a negotiation. And that negotiation ended up in the Treaty of Tordesillas, signed a year later, 1494, that divided the world in half with the vertical line north south, uh, 370 leagues east of the island of Cape Verde, the islands of Cape Verde which already, which included Brazil for Portugal, which the King of Portugal already knew was there. And so once that treaty was signed, preventing the Spanish from sailing around the Cape of Good Hope, which was already discovered, that's how the Sea Route to India was protected from the enemy. The enemy was Spain. That's why there was uh, was Castile. That's why there's no treaty against, with England or France or Italy. Uh, dividing the world between them because they were never enemies of
0: Portugal. Yeah, and it was just between between Portugal and Castile and, and it and it had to be India. It couldn't you could Portugal couldn't have said, oh there's um you know there's a there's a cool land over there um yeah, yeah, with, with exactly. all sorts of nice beaches. It, it had to be India. They they were interested in, in exactly.
1: that. exactly we got all the all the free wood you want, you know, and all all the fresh water you want is all over there. No, because what what you know what would that benefit to Spain, you know? They wanted trade, and so Columbus promised them trade, gold, spices, you know, and uh, and if you read Columbus's uh, letters to the king, he's always talking about gold, you know, all the gold, you can see it in the rivers, you know, and we got the spices, we have cinnamon, you know, we found rhubarb, and we found mastic, and, you know, talking up a commercial enterprise that would benefit, you know, that would enrich Spain. Eventually, of course, Spain got very rich from it, you know, but at that time, Portugal was focused on what they knew was there, which was the, the, the spice trade in India, and not on something that they knew was here, but didn't know how rich it was. And So they, they made what they thought was the best decision for them, and it, it worked perfectly. Well, Lisbon became the richest city in all of Europe for about 50 years.
0: If the Portuguese really were behind this expedition of deception, what involvement did the Spanish have? After all, this was a Spanish voyage, or specifically a voyage funded by the Kingdom of Castile, and Columbus had supposedly made one of the most groundbreaking discoveries, that it was possible to reach India by travelling west. But what's perhaps more interesting is what Columbus did when he returned from the New World, because you'd think that the first thing that he would do would be to return straight to Spain and to Queen Isabella, his sponsor, and tell her about his success. But he didn't. Not for a long time.
1: Exactly. He went to
0: meet with the person he was
1: working for. He went to meet with King John II. And when he when he found that the king was not in Lisbon, he wrote to the king. He waited for the king's orders. The king asked him to come to him. He did. He traveled. You know some. 70 miles to meet with the king Uh, so he he met with the king he was with the king for three days and it's very interesting i'm showing my book how he lied to the spanish over and over again and you can prove these lies very very factually you know by following along with with his diary where he says on march 3rd that he hit he, he came across a tremendous storm that ripped his sails and he had no option but to sail into the port of lisbon i said well if, if if you're in front of the port of Lisbon when the storm comes why are you in front of the port of Lisbon you know so the storm never happened he just made that up so he could have an excuse for why he's in the enemy territory and uh, when the king is not there like I said he writes to the king he waits for the king's order he goes to meet with the king he meets with the king for three days he gives him all the information of the new world where he's been all the you know details and only then he goes to Spain and uh, you know, that is how good a liar it and, and how good he was at executing his plan, you know, his mission. And he executed it so perfectly that it took 500 years to unravel, you know, all these details. It took me 30 years to unravel all these details. You know, they're all there, that friend you want to see. But if you're not looking at, if you're not looking to prove the lies and what is the truth, then you, you're not going to find it. But as you know, uh, everything I say, I'm, I'm backing up with documentation, such as the case of when he went to Madeira in 1498. You know, he left Spain with the, with the ships, and he went to Madeira, where he was born. And he lied to the Spanish as to why he went to Madeira. You know, He said that he, he wrote to the kings. He said, I, I had to go to Madeira. It was an unusual route because I was trying to avoid the French pirate that was waiting for me at the Cape of Saint Vincent in Portugal. Well, it turns out that he had already planned that voyage two weeks prior to the pirate showing up, and I show proof of that uh, in his letters to his co-conspirator. I show proof of that in my book. So uh, if we didn't have his letters to his friends, it would be impossible to prove the stuff that I've proven. But when you cross-reference everything, it's completely obvious, you know, that he was working for the King of Portugal, and he was always lying to the Spanish.
0: But but presumably people would argue, well, surely he had – Spanish agents and sailors with him on, on the expedition, and they would have objected to, to this kind of behavior. Well,
1: that's true, but he was but he outsmarted them. You know, you know that in the outward voyage, he, he was he was this he was lying about the leagues traveled all the time. You know, they would travel. They'd say, "Oh, Captain Captain Columbus, by our calculations, we we sailed fifty leagues," and he would say, "Yeah, well, my calculations was only 42. Uh, next day, Captain, we sailed uh, 35 leagues. I think it was only 31. And so every day he was cutting back on the leagues. So when they finally got to the New World, you know, they had sailed like 1,200 leagues. But everyone thought they only sailed 800. So, when, so on the return voyage, everybody believed they only had to sail back 800 leagues when Columbus knew it was really 1,200 uh, 1, leagues. So they were off by 400 leagues. And the proof of this is, uh, I think, February 11 or so, uh, when you read it in the diary, and he says, uh, I, I have, uh, you know, all the, the men are, are positioning the ship, you know, uh, are finding our position on the, shi- uh, on the sea. And uh, these guys say we're almost in, uh, in G- uh, Galiza, which is northern Spain. These guys say we're almost at the Canaries. But they're all wrong, because today, I, I am south of the island of Flores in the Azores, and Casablanca is straight east of me, and I am north of the island of Madeira. And so what we have, we have four pilots and two captains on the, on the, on the voyage. They're all lost. The only one who knew where he was was Columbus. And the reason is because he tricked them on the way out. And so uh, he did a lot of stuff like this by deception. But more importantly is that because he was captain general of the fleet, none of the, of the low the lower class mariners would ever have a chance to go to court and present themselves, you know, it's is not, not going to be allowed. The only two people on the expedition that would have gone to court with Columbus was the secretary of the fleet, Scribner, and the comptroller of the fleet. Those two guys were people from the court that was sent specifically to keep an eye on him and to keep, you know, uh, to report back to the Kings. Well, those two people were left behind in Haiti on Caracol Beach when he he marooned uh, Santa Maria and shot it with a cannonball so they couldn't float it and follow him home. Those two guys from the court, the only two who would have gone to the court with him, were left behind. They never had a chance to tell their story. So when he arrives telling them that he came from India and he found gold and spices and everything, um, and the city conquered the city, you know? There was nobody there to say, hey, your highnesses, it's just four grass huts and, and 10 naked savage, naked, uh, naked natives, you know?
0: 007 kind of stuff.
1: It was perfect, it was perfect. It was so perfect, executed, planned perfectly, executed perfectly. And this was never supposed to be found out. What I, what I present in my book was never supposed to be found out. As you know, I tell in my book about the, the false globe that was built in Germany. Germany, yeah. While Columbus is on his first voyage, the king sends another secret agent to Germany, build a false globe, and put Japan on top of Canada, which is impossible. Portugal already knew Japan, Canada was not Japan, you know? But yeah, it, a- it, it was an, another aid in the deception.
0: So Columbus did end up coming back from the New World in, in Chains as, a, as an arrested man. And a lot of people think that's because of the, the way he treated the native population. And um, you know, that's, that's not to, the case. It had
1: nothing to do with the natives at all. Uh, it, it had to do initially because he was mistreating the Spanish, the Spanish nobles. So a lot of, you know, uh, the New World was barren. You know, there was no civilization, there were no cities, there were no houses, there was nothing, you know. So he had to come with these colonizers and actually build, build a city, build homes, uh, you know, streets, uh, create a working society, a working environment. But these nobles that came from Spain with him uh, in that second voyage, 1500 Spanish, uh, you know, not all of them were nobles, but the, the nobles that came, thought they were coming on a vacation to go and, you know, sweep up golds with shovels in the streets, you know, sweep up gold. And when they realized the reality of the situation, that they actually had to work, you know, not just hang around like noblemen, but to work like peasants, they didn't they were not too happy about that. And a lot of them, uh, you know, fought Columbus, uh, fought against Columbus's rule, you know, uh, not not following his orders, you know, whatever. And so uh, some of them were were disciplined. Some of them were hanged, you know, for treason uh, and whatever. So he uh, mistreated the Spanish noblemen. Uh, because he had no other choice, you know, because they're not following his orders and they're, they're, some of them mutinied against him, actually. And, uh, and news of that got back to the court, and he actually had written to the court several times, you know, I, you, I need you to send me a justice that can stay here and enforce justice because I can't do everything myself, you know. And so, um, but, the, but the, the court never listened to his pleas until Vasco da Gama returned from, the new, from the India in uh, 1489. Uh, 1489, sorry, 1489, right. So when Vasco da Gama returned in 1489 from the real India, that's when Spain's, you know, Spain really uh, took interest in in deposing Columbus. Like, you know, they they realized that uh, Vasco da Gama was more proof that they were being duped, And so they sent uh, uh, one of their guys, Francisco de Bobadilla, Basically, to replace Columbus, he came with uh, with the blank letters. All the letters had the, the king's seal, and then he could write in whatever orders he wished. So when he came to the new world, he uh, ordered, you know, he, he filled out one of these blank papers, uh, making him governor of the new world, so deposing Columbus that way. He passed another law um, raising the the pay scale for everyone, so they would follow him because you know he was paying more than Columbus. And then uh, he, he ended up arresting Columbus' and his two brothers and sending them back. And Columbus never ruled the new world again. So he was really only in charge from 1493, basically um, January 1494, let's say it that way, when he started to, to build uh, La Isabella until 1500. So he was only in charge of the new world for six years. Out of those six years, two of them he spent back in Spain, because he went back in '96 and he returned in 98. So he really only ruled the new world for four years. And out of those four years, he, was also, he also took time uh, several months to sail around Cuba and, and Jamaica. So I would say he controlled the new world for three and a half years personally, uh, you know, in charge. He left his brother in charge when he was not there. But he himself will only ruled over the new world for three and a half years. And there's not a lot a guy can do in three and a half years, against the native population, with half of your um, the people under your command mutiny against you because half of the uh, the people that he brought uh, actually split up from, from from his rule, created an adversary army that Columbus had to fight all the time, and so um, a lot of the stuff that's attributed to him with the natives and all that is uh, overblown. Yeah, it's true that he you know that he that he killed natives. It's true that. He you know would slice their ears off or their nose off if they were stealing and not following the rules because the natives had no idea what rules were what law was, and uh, you cannot expect them to follow you know European laws when they have no idea what these silly Europeans are on their land, but you know he he wanted the uh, laws to be obeyed so he he would order you know cut his ear off so it's an example for the other natives so they don't do the same thing and um and so there's a lot of stuff attributed really to him that he never did that's just, you know. Uh, and if he did, it was, it was in a minor scale. You know. even, even if he killed, you know, he was in charge, like I said, three and a half years. Even if he killed 10 natives a day for three and a half years, you know, he would, it would be about 10,000 natives. Never the hundreds of thousands that people are talking about. So there's a lot of um, misinformation that's part of the myth and part of the, um, the overblown, um, you know, facts overblown to, to make him look bad when, when he didn't do all these things.
0: And another thing people say to you know, make Columbus look bad is that he never discovered, he, sorry, he never set foot on mainland America, but, but you you're not sure about that?
1: <laughs> well, it's very interesting. Like I said, well, he was in Canada in 1477. So he was around the Bay of Fundy in Canada in February 1477. That's his own notes. Um, I show that in my book, but one very interesting thing that, um, that I can say is that uh, Juan de la Cosa, which was the, the owner of the Santa Maria and who sailed for Columbus, uh, the first and the second voyage, built a map, that, you know, if you search for the Juan de la Cosa map uh, on the Google, you, will, you should find it. I show that map in my book, and that map basically shows the coast of Canada all the way to uh, almost Argentina. You know it shows uh, all the way from Canada all the way down beyond Brazil to Argentina, and it shows Florida and so uh, you'd have to ask yourself if Juan de La cosa who sailed with Columbus shows Florida uh, you know on the map um, when did he when did he get to Florida? was it with Columbus was it before Columbus you know because the map is from fifteen hundred so uh, for fifteen hundred is you know uh, six years after, after, eight years after the first voyage. So we don't know where Columbus went when he would sail. You know, he would leave his brother in charge of the new colony, he'd get on the ship, you know, and just go do what he liked to do, which was sail and discover new things. So we don't know when he was gone for months at a time, where he went. You know, did he go south to Brazil? Did he go north to Boston? We don't know. But he did a lot that he never recorded. You know, it's just, it was his own
0: secret. Yeah, I was going to say kept his secret in characteristic Portuguese fashion.
1: Well, yeah, you know, he, he is a very interesting thing when he discovered the Viragua and the gold and all that. And this is the Ford Voyage. And if you read this account of the fourth Voyage, it's very interesting because he says, you know, he says this. He says, uh, uh, who, you know, I forget, he, he had a couple of hundred men with him. He says, out of these couple of hundred men, asked them who, who of them out of them knows how to get back to the place where I was. None of them know it. I'm the only one who knows it. So, you know, intentionally, sometimes people would draw maps when they were on the ship. You know, they would draw notes and things for themselves. Before they got off the ship, We would confiscate all their maps because they did not want them to know, you know, where they were, where they were going or how to get back to
0: Yeah, it really turns the story on his head because I, I know that Christopher Columbus gets a lot of, a lot of stick uh, at the moment. And fair enough, you, you can be angry about um, Columbus, the way, the way he treated native populations by, by all means but the case you make is you know, really turns everything on his head and you, you have to really reassess um, your views on Columbus but, but do, you, do you think we should celebrate the man?
1: Well uh, I would say that Columbus is a Spanish hero you know? he's a Portuguese hero before he is a Spanish hero but he is definitely a Spanish hero, you know, he's a guy who gave Spain a whole new world um, it doesn't matter that he was working for Portugal at the time. He still did it. He gave it to them. So he's a Spanish hero. If anyone has a right to celebrate Columbus, it's Spain. Uh, I don't think uh, America, he certainly never set a foot in the, in the United States. Any, any, it's not documented that he ever set foot in any of the US territories. So, well, Santo Domingo, uh, Puerto Rico, which is not really a, yet a American territory, it's uh, kind of a Well, we won't get to that. Uh, In American mainland, we don't know that he ever set foot in American mainland. The only reason we have a Columbus Day in the United States is because the uh, Italian lobby in the 1920s or 30s, whenever it was, they got together to ask for this Columbus holiday for the Italian community. It was not really because he discovered America. So I I don't really, uh, I'm indifferent to any of that. I don't really care as far as who wants to celebrate him and not celebrate him. I think it's more important that we understand them and and that we understand what he did, why he did it, and that understand that this guy, whatever, however you want to view him, this guy was a genius who executed the plan down perfectly without making any mistakes, and he executed it so well that it was kept, kept hidden for 500 years. And it took me thirty years, even after I knew that he was, even after I knew what he was up to. It took me thirty years to get all the information that I was able to gather to prove all the different deceptions. You know, prove it with his own words. Uh, all the different deceptions that he was involved in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's clear how much how much work you've put into it. But it's uh, it must be it must be a pleasure to to marvel at the uh, the details and the um the the ruses and and, and all of the false signals that Columbus threw out. Well, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. He was not working alone. Like I said,
1: he had a whole team working with him. He never would have been able to do this alone. So he had a team. He had, he had, he had a team working with him to deceive Spain. Some of them inside Spain, some of them in Portugal, some of them in Italy. And he then had a team working to hide his identity. That team was a Spanish court and the Portuguese court. So both of the things that, that, both of the mysterious, well, both of the major parts of his, of his story, he had people helping him to do it. One was propagating the false identity and hiding the real identity. He couldn't do that alone because he could not control uh, court chroniclers and say, you know, hey, don't write this about me. You know, the courts control that. So he had the courts in Spain and Portugal controlling the, you know, working with him to hide his identity. And then he had all these other co-conspirators helping him to deceive Spain and to believe in America was India and to to, uh, propagate the lie. You know, the press release is a perfect example. That press release was released intentionally. It was important that the world knew Columbus had discovered India to put pressure on Castile to protect India. You see? Because now the whole world knows, you know, that India is just a, a month's sail away from West and Spain has to protect that for itself. So it put pressure, it was intentional.
0: Yeah. But, but I hadn't actually thought until you mentioned it, the, the idea that Spanish should overall on balance be grateful to Columbus because he did kind of inadvertently give them the the new world. But um, I just want to finish by asking you, have you had any, you know, obviously you've, you've had, Like from from what I gather, almost everyone who's read your book has been pretty much convinced by a majority of it, um, at the very least. What about the um, the kind of the key players in this? Like the Columbus family, have you had any response from from them if if there is any? The Polish, you know, what do they say about um, the idea that Columbus is of Polish origin? Well, you know, I like to
1: say I like to say this about my research. I I I say everyone who's read my book, like you've read, is pretty much in agreement with the stuff I, I. I present because I present it based on documents that anyone can go verify. Anyone who's not read my book, who has only heard that Columbus was a secret agent of Portugal or that Columbus was son of a Polish king, is going to doubt it because the lie is so well planted that it's very difficult to get that out of people's minds unless they read the book and get the evidence. And a lot of people in Polish, I I have emails from professors in Polish universities Saying they agree with me and they want the DNA tests to be done. Unfortunately, there are people in Polish, in, in Poland, in power who have not given me access to the bones in in Babel Cathedral to do the DNA tests that are required. And right now, at the University of Granada, Professor Jose Lorente, who I'm working with, is doing a new round of tests with with different candidates, different theories, trying to prove or disprove them. And of course, um, you know, I can I can. Look at all these theories and say how they're never going to fit because you don't have, you don't even have 50% of the evidence that is required to make a cohesive theory and, and you know, of who Columbus was. I have 90% evidence. All I need is, is DNA or a document, a, a document from Portugal explaining who the, or the husband of Filipe Muniz was. And uh, one of those two things will solve this case.
0: Well, I I wish you the best of luck and I do, I do really hope that, um, you know, we can, this, well, I I think it's almost inevitable that this will become, um, the conventional narrative, but, um, let's just hope it happens sooner rather than later. There's no going back. I mean, there's no going back. So my thesis right now, I have, I have
1: part of the evidence I prove, I present is that the guy who discovered the new world is documented to be five years younger than the, than the the Genoese wool weaver was, and so uh, that right there is enough evidence to to aside from all everything else, math you cannot you cannot um, contest math. You know, uh, Columbus wrote in for, in, in um, several times. Uh, he wrote several times that he went to Spain when he was twenty eight years old, and he went to Spain around 1484, 1483, 1484. And that would make his his date of birth fourteen fifty five. The, the Columbus wool weaver from Italy was born in 1451. That's very well documented in, in all the documents in Genoa. So the two guys had two different birth dates and nobody is born twice.
0: I, I can't wait to see the film as well.
1: <laughs> well, I'm waiting for Hollywood. They, they don't know I exist, but someday after I'm dead, somebody will do something.
0: Oh, my. Well, I think it would be, be, be a magnificent film. Um, better than I mean, there's hundreds of films about the uh, the classic Christopher Columbus I'm, I'm sure I, I haven't really seen any but I think there's loads but this this the, 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 the real story of uh, Columbus I would mean, make the, the a phenomenal story, film.
1: The real story um, you know is much much more interesting than the fiction that they've been feeding us for, for a long time.
0: Yeah well it's a it's a Bond movie versus a Disney movie and I know which I'd rather see. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Is there anything that we uh, we haven't touched on yet? There's so much stuff that you sure. know you're
1: not going to touch on everything. But uh, I would just like to say again that everything I say is documented. Uh, it's it's as you read the book, you know, I present the documents. I think I bring the reader along with me to you know going through all the details so they understand uh, you know how things happen and why. And I'd say just read the book, and um, you're gonna learn a lot of stuff you never, you didn't think was actually factual, but the documents are there. So columbus bookcom
0: Yeah, I can't, I can't recommend the book enough. I really enjoyed it, uh, and I have to admit, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't read history books often at all, and that was, well, you it's know, it's not a
1: history that's... book. This is an investigation of history.
0: Yes. Yeah. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it so much. Thanks for tuning in to my two-part Columbus Day special and a huge thank you to Manuel Rosa, who I am so grateful to for coming on the podcast. It is astounding how much time and research he's put into his work. If you want to buy the book, which I highly recommend, or see some fantastic TV appearances that Manuel's made, check out his website, which is linked in this description. As a Columbus Day gift, please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone who fancies themselves as a bit of a Columbus know-it-all. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? And if you'd like to support the production of this podcast, you can now make a small donation via the link in the description. Thanks for listening, take care, and happy Columbus Day.